Welcome to Threads of Enlightenment, your journey into personal growth. The splendor of any decision is after you've made it, all that remains to be seen are its consequences. My name is Ken Primus. I am your host. Here at Threads of Enlightenment, we talk about the principles of self-development and personal growth. By having conversation with people, who have walked through their journey of personal growth. We believe that everyone at some point in their life will have to deal with one or more of these principles to have the privilege of focusing on their self-development as humans. These principles, when applied, can help you to become the best self possible. Welcome to another episode of Threads of Enlightenment. As usual, Daniel, I'd like to take the time and stop right here and say thank you for a couple of things that I know you are coming with that I personally deem very expensive your time, sir. I want to thank you so much for that because that commodity is not spent correctly by many of us that are walking this planet. But I want to thank you that you're able to come and share some of it with us. The other is your journey that is a precious thing that has embodied who you were and has created who you are today. And we are honored that you're here to share some of that insight that you've gathered. And I want to thank you so much, sir, for coming and sharing all of that with us here at Threads of Enlightenment. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You tell them, Daniel, about all those books and everything you got. I tell them... Think about everything that you've done and then the things that you're about to do. Because I tell them, once someone is awake, um, complacency becomes their enemy. We don't know how to stay stagnant. And uh, we are constantly moving, if you will. So talk to them about those things that you have created so far from your journey. So far, one book. um, It's probably a one-off, Ken. Uh, (laughs) From my uh, background and my experience, I had uh, 24 years with the Secret Service. And, you know, we wanted to talk about our history. And as a child, it, it, it you know, it was I was always outdoors into sports and, uh, you know, being active. And I kind of got thrown into and this is a short story. Uh, everyone has clicks when they're in school and especially yeah. high school. And it was a small high school, a small town. I grew up on a a small farm. Uh, It started turning into suburbia. Anyways, always into sports and uh, just very active. And I'm tall and I love basketball. And I wanted to be a radio broadcaster, not television so much. I wanted to be on the radio broadcasting. Uh, Being from up north, I wasn't a Knicks fan, but that's what we had, the, the New York Knicks. And listening to the radio broadcast just really... I really loved it. Anyway, aside to that, uh, when I was in high school, you have a group of friends and you're doing certain things. And I had this one kid who came up to me and he says, hey, we're putting on this play. Hello, Dolly. And we need male dancers. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. ooh, no, uh, (laughs) no, 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 no. That's not, no, that's not me. I don't, that's not my forte. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he begged and pleaded. And his mom, who wasn't a teacher, she was the uh, director for uh, these uh, theater productions they'd put on. 
talked to me and she said, look, here's all I need you to do. You, you know, you're going to get in front of uh, the stage and you're going to dance with a bunch of other people. You're not going to be up there all by yourself. Uh, all this kind of stuff. Well, two things. One was, you know, obviously stage fright, being in front of all these people. Secondly, I had to dance with a girl. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my. And I had to dance with this beautiful girl. And mm. I was a nervous wreck. My hands were sweating. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm dancing with her. And she's like, you have to feel that my hands are sweaty. And it was a great experience. And I stayed with it. I stayed with it. We put on production. Yeah. That was my, was that my freshman year, my sophomore year, my junior year? And put on these productions. And all of a sudden, I was like, hey, this is kind of neat. I kind of mm-hmm. like it. I kind of like performing. And as time went on again, uh, I was able to broadcast our high school basketball games, which was a great experience. And I wanted to do that in college. And I went to Southern Illinois University out in Carbondale, Illinois. And they had a uh, private uh, public, excuse me, a public uh, TV and radio station. I thought, oh, my gosh, that's what I want to do. And I started getting into it. And pretty soon I found that that was really clickish. That was you're the part mm-hmm. of the club or you're not a part of the club. I wasn't a part of the club. Anyway, as a <laughs> minor, I was taking criminal justice. Because I guess, uh, you know, along the, the lines of being in the medical profession or a fireman or a policeman, you wanted to help people. And that's, mm-hmm. I guess, inside me, I wanted to help people. And we'll, we'll get to this later on. But I, at the time, I had no idea I was an empath. And I only found that out about five years ago. Um, anyway, the radio and television part of that, my education kind of faded. And I concentrated more on criminal justice. That's what I graduated from school for that. And when I graduated, I came back home and knocked around a few jobs. I applied for some state trooper positions, some other police positions. But, you know, in the back of your mind, you know, I, I don't care who you are. I wasn't crazy as a kid. I wasn't a speeder or did bad things or, you know, because I had a pretty tough dad. Yeah. But, you know, it, when you talk about most people, when they have contact with the police, it's mm-hmm. usually, you know, when you're pulled over for speeding, you're pulled over for a ticket or something like that. So you think, these most police officers are jerks. Why would I want to be a police officer? And <laughs> I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do something else. So I knocked around a few jobs. I worked at a warehouse. I worked uh, for a, a DHL, which is a like a FedEx Express company. They're more worldwide. They're more known overseas, which is a great company. I worked for an alarm company. I worked for a manufacturing company. And I thought, you know, you got to start having a career. They can't keep knocking around all these jobs. They got to have a career. So how again, old were you, um, Daniel, when you had that um, conversation where you said, wait a minute, I need to have a, a career. How old were you? Now I'm getting into my 30s there, Ken. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, but I was okay because yeah. I was okay because I always could find work. And my dad had got, and my mom also, my mom worked a long time in her life, um, had that that work ethic to, look, if you want to make money, if you want to get things, you work. And it was, it it felt good to work. Mm -hmm. It felt good to get a paycheck. So, you know, I I could always find work, but at the time I I, I didn't have a career. Anyway, I applied for the Secret Service and this was, oh my gosh, in the early 80s. Let and me I ask you a question, Dan. Dan yes. Let me ask you a question right here. Why that? What was it that you were thinking 
that said to you, the um, Secret Service, because you had said the cop piece, uh, the police officer piece, didn't really, uh, um, you know, stuck there. I wasn't Why attracted. The Secret Service? Yes. Right. I didn't, wasn't attracted, attracted to that. Someone, I don't know who, remember, this was before the internet, before cell phones, all this stuff. Yeah. Someone gave me a pamphlet. I, mm-hmm. I, I really, I can't remember who it was. I wish I could. They gave me a pamphlet of this job down in Washington, D.C. with the Secret Service. And it wasn't with the agents, the guys that talk with the suits and talk in their sleeves. They actually have a yeah. uniform division part of the Secret Service. And they protect all the embassies. Uh, they protect the vice president's residence. And they're at the White House. They're the, the mm-hmm. major uh, uh, the, uh Amount of people are at the White House. Anyway, I see this pamphlet and I see what they do. And they don't do really police work. It's more protection work. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, that, that kind of sounds kind of cool. So yeah. I applied. I went down to Washington, D.C., took the test, the physicals and all this stuff. OK, we'll call you later. All right. So you go back home and they do a back, background check on you. All of a sudden I get this pamphlet in the mail and it says your height must be in proportion to your weight. And I'm thinking there must be some mistake. They must think I'm like obese or overweight or something. At the time, I was the same height. I was like 6'4". I weighed probably 160 pounds soaking wet. I was underweight. So (laughs) what? So how I got through, I don't know. I called them on the phone and I said, what is going on here? She says, well, the process stops until you make the weight. And I think I had to gain like eight pounds, something like that. So me, Uh honest Dan. Instead of going back to the doctor and saying, you know what, can you fudge the numbers here and just make me gain eight pounds? I'll get on the job and figure it out. No, 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 no. I go on some weight training program for a month. My metabolism was so fast, I couldn't gain the weight. I'm drinking milkshakes, (laughs) eating bananas, everything I could think of, Big Macs. It took me a month to gain the eight pounds. So I go back, (laughs) okay, send the paperwork back. I'm good to go. They send it uh, back to me and they said, oh, you just missed the class. Just missed it. Okay, well, when's the next class? Oh, it's not until a year from now. Oh. <laughs> okay, do I sit around waiting for a year? What do I do? So I went around and knocked around a few more jobs. And again, uh-huh. I'm getting older. I find out that the the top age, any you couldn't be over 30 at the time. You couldn't be over 32 years of age in order to apply again. So I yeah. waited until I was almost 32. And I said, well, what the heck? Let me try again. Yeah. Try it again and get in. Now I'm the oldest person in the class. <laughs> just coming out of college, right? Because I didn't need a co- they didn't need a college degree at the time. Yeah. I'm dealing with 20, 20 year, 21 year olds, right? Here I am, the old man in this class. <laughs> and just go through the physical stuff and, the, and all the stuff and the shooting and, and the tests and this and that. But I tell you what, I got through it and um, it was great experience. I got on the job and because I was older, because I got in, I was old. Mm-hmm. I was older, and I had the college degree. I moved mm-hmm. up through not only the rankings but the specialized positions, uh, probably ahead of these other kids. Fair mm-hmm. or unfair, but most of my supervisors at the time were the same age as me, so I related yeah. better to them. They related better to me. I was entrusted uh, with some uh, high-profile stuff and, and a lot of high-security stuff. And then uh, with my three years on, um, I got into canine. I was wow. accepted into canine, and I was the youngest member uh, in, in years on the job, excuse me, not in age, but on the yeah. job to get a dog. 
and he was a bomb sniffing dog. He was also handler uh, protection dog. Uh, they don't do that anymore. Now they're just strictly uh, the uh, bomb dogs. And then the other part yeah. of it is ERT dogs. They're the ones who are mostly the handler trained dogs. And it was just a great experience. And um, it, it's different. I know there, there, I'm sure there are a lot of pet owners out there. I'm a dog guy. I'm sorry, not a cat guy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I had dogs since I was a kid. But to have a dog you work with, it's just yeah. another level. It's a whole nother level that you're this dog's God 24 hours a day. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, my dog did not work out as a bomb dog. So after four years, he just, Ken, he just, he just gave up. And it was kind of sad, wow. except the service allowed me to keep him. And there was mm-hmm. a lot of tension there too. On here's this expensive yeah. dog we got for you. You went through this training it was unprecedented at the time. Wait a minute. The government is thinking because the government's thought was that's property. That dog is yeah. property, just like your, your other property is. They, they don't think of anything, you know, on the human side of it. And I fought and fought and fought and, and just went through every avenue I could think of. And luckily, I had some people behind me and said, wait a minute. You know, the guy is getting out of the program anyways. They didn't have a retention program that I stayed in canine. And I went back into what they call basically the rotation of other officers, but I got to keep the dog and I got to have nice. him as a pet at home. And he lived, he was 13 years old and he was just the greatest, greatest pet, greatest dog. And I've never had one since because it was kind of one dog and out. And um, yeah. anyway, other parts of my career, I got to do public affairs. I got to do tours of the white house because I found out I'm such a history buff. They allowed us to go inside and give tours to people to come in. And again, this is where the empath part came out because I had absolutely no idea that that was part of my yeah. personality and my background. So I was there for 24 years and had a great time, served from the end of Reagan's term until uh, Obama. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just, I was at the White House. I got to meet celebrities and diplomats and sports figures. And it was just a really, really great experience. And to work for the government, yeah, there's a bureaucracy. Yeah, there's yeah, things you yeah. have to deal with. But I got a great pension. I came down here to uh, Florida and um, was going to retire and sit on a beach. And then you find <laughs> out, no, you're an alpha personality. You can't sit still. And yeah, I, said, I can't sit still. I can't. I mean, not only was the service uh, ingrained in you about the physicality of keeping in shape and, uh, you know, the routine, uh, kind of almost the guys in the military, they just have a you have a routine. And um, I couldn't stop. So I joined uh, our county school system down here as an emergency manager Mm -hmm. and come to find out uh, I enjoyed that also. It was also a, a government job, a county job. But. Um, I found out there were things they wanted to do for safety and security that they weren't really following. Uh, it was it was coming from where I was from, uh, from the Secret Service. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is this has to change. And I luckily was given yeah. that power for a short time uh, to change things. And yeah. Yeah, just for example, I'll give an example. A lot of these schools, when they did their emergency procedures, would use code words. Code mm-hmm. red, code blue, code white, like you're in a hospital or something. And I said, what, what does that mean? I mean, well, our teachers know what it means. I said, yeah, but 
What if you have parents here? What if you have a maintenance worker? What if you have visitors? They're like, the heck is that? I said, why, yeah. why can't we use just plain language? We're in a lockdown. We have, you know, a trespasser. Uh, we have a student that, you know, is in trouble. Just use plain language. And they were, they, oh, my my God, they fought against that. It yeah. took me so many months to get them out of these codes. And I'll give, here's, well, I'm jumping ahead. Here's <laughs> one example. When uh, we were going to a lockdown, and I'm sure your audience knows what a lockdown is. Basically, it's when yeah. you have an intruder that is in your either place of business, church, school, whatever, you go into a lockdown, which means you lock yourself in a room, lock the door, close all the windows, you get on the floor away from the windows, and um, you silence your phones, you turn off the lights, basically act as if there's no one inside that room. Well, to make the announcement, they would use code words. And I said, again, you know, one of the elementary schools and I put this in my book. One of the elementary schools used the pony is being delivered today. That was their code for a lockdown. <laughs> okay, it sounds great for these kids to not get these kids all upset. Like, oh, the pony's here today. Oh, my God. Thank you. And like, no, no, you can't use something like that for a lockdown. It's confusing. I said, just say lockdown. It's okay. And because yeah. you find out a lot of, uh, I don't say a lot. Some of the schools, uh, especially elementary schools, and I understand it. Uh, you want to protect these kids. You, you really yeah. want to. I, I tell you, when you go to elementary school, these kids are just they're open books. They're yeah. uh, just just really great. I mean, <laughs> as you get older, as you know, when you get to middle school, teenagers, oh, my God, the hormones kick in. You're like, oh, God, what happened? <laughs> what is this? Who's the monster? <laughs> but elementary schools are something else. And I, these kids are they're not naive. Yeah. They are worldly. They are sponges. They soak up stuff. I'll give you another example about, about just dealing with kids because yeah. people wanted me to be a teacher. And I just I tell you what, teaching is the toughest job, even police yeah. work and firework. I tell you, it's maybe it's more dangerous. But being a teacher, especially in today's world, mm -hmm. being a teacher in today's world is just incredibly, incredibly difficult, not only because of the pressure from parents, from administrators, from the school boards to um, get your curriculum correct, to get your grades up. I don't know how it, it uh, deal in where you're at, Ken, but here in Florida, uh, it's a grading system, A through F. And boy, yeah. I tell you, if you're in a D or an F school, look out because the pressure's on. You want to get that yeah. grade back up there so you can get the funds and so you can get you know good teachers. And it's tough. And now on top of that, you're going to put on these teachers – the idea that they could be at risk for someone coming in and shooting up their school, possibly killing them or their students. It's just beyond what obviously they signed up for. And I get that virtually all the time that teachers will tell you they're scared. They did not sign up for this. And that's just part of why a lot of teachers are, are leaving the job. I mean, COVID and the pandemic also was just another you know, a knife in the back of a lot of yeah. these teachers and what they dealt with uh, these students. But back to my point of uh, dealing with elementary schools, because uh, most of your uh, school systems have uh, the majority elementary schools and you have lesser middle schools and you only have a certain number of high schools. Uh, I was at this middle school, I'm sorry, elementary school, and it was a two level school. So when you wanted to lock down, when you went upstairs, there was a set of glass doors that you had to lock first. And then it was a, 
a cubicle. It was a circular cubicle of uh, your classrooms. So one teacher would be designated during the lockdown to have to go out and lock those outer doors. Okay, well, what happens if that teacher is not there that day? Is mm-hmm. the substitute going to take over? Do you have a plan B of who the next person is to lock the doors? And I remember going into one classroom and we were talking about it. And the teacher says, I'm the one that's assigned for it. I said, well, where's the key to lock those outer doors? And immediately, this is fifth grade kids. One kid raised, I know where the key is. I know where the key is. I was like, okay, where's the key? Well, it's out here by the fire extinguisher, in the fire extinguisher cabinet. I'm like, okay. So they're all, I said, let's, let's all go out. So I took the class out there. I said, all you guys know where the key is. Yeah. I said, this is great. I said, what if your teacher gets sick or faints or passes out? And all the kids go, we can help. We can help. Great. I had every one of those kids go into that cabinet, take that key and lock those outer doors. And you, I tell you the pride that these kids felt like yeah. they accomplished this and they could help because kids want to help, especially elementary yeah. school. They want to help. They, they, I, I'm ready to go. And it was just the greatest feeling. And it, it just, I was like, oh my gosh, um, don't discount that these, these small children, um, are, are that naive that they don't know what's going on. I understand not to scare them. And when we would do lockdown drills, we don't scare them. We, you know, we either play a game and they're very young. Kindergarten, yeah. first group, we're going to hide from the bad guy or we're going to do this or that. And we go into over here. And at every one of those lockdowns that I experienced, because I know there's some um, dispute about this and some debate at the end of the lockdown, we would go and unlock the doors and all these kids would come out beaming beaming and praise them how quiet they were how great a job they did and you could see the smile on their faces that they accomplished this that this was a good thing so we can get into the specifics of drilling because there's also a debate about that ken about uh more drilling is uh bad uh less is good but i that's a debate that has been going on in in the community uh for a number of years but um i gotta tell you uh just the school system I dealt with. Look, I dealt with a school system of 100,000 students, 140 schools. I was the only one. I had no help. I had no staff. I had no secretary. It, it wasn't, you know, I could designate. I, I was it. So wow. um, having to go to each one of these schools, which I finally did, it took me a year to visit all these 140 schools uh, and be participate in their drills to see their reaction and to be able to see this is... We, we have to drill because we don't have to know how to fix things. If something yeah. goes wrong, let it go wrong during a drill. I don't want it to go yeah. wrong uh, during a real thing. So if we go back to my book, which is called The First Five Minutes, the reason it was called that, and now FBI statistics are not up to date. They can't because they have to take so much data. So I think this was from yeah. 2014. Their data at the time said an active school shooter, on average, this is on average, is between three to five minutes, three to five minutes. And it, it, it's going to seem to most people, I mean, I went through 9-11 at, at the White House, but three to five minutes, when you say it, it sounds like a very short time. Mm-hmm. But in reality, when you're going through something chaotic like that, it just seems like it takes forever. So in those three to five minutes, you're on your own. The police are coming. I mean, we can talk about yeah. reality. I mean, that's, uh, that was a disaster. But... of police departments know what they're doing and they're they're coming. But in those five minutes, you're on your own. So you have to figure out, number one, you keep yourself safe. That's the number one thing. 
then you can help your students and you can help other people. So in those five minutes, I try to train people uh, to calmly go through the process of what they're going to do. Their door should already be locked. If it's not, you lock your door. You turn your lights off. You put your children in the corner away from the windows. You cover the windows. You silence your phone. You cover the computers. And you're just quiet. And you just be quiet. And the hardest thing, and Ken, it's, it, everyone's seen movies. And, uh, you know, we can talk about violence and stuff like that. But there's a lot of bad stuff that you're going to hear. You're going to hear a lot of screaming. You're going to hear help. You're going to hear people maybe even pounding on your door, asking you to open the door so they can get in. And you have to ignore all that. You have to ignore all the announcements that are made. Ignore the fire alarm. Um, someone getting on the on the uh, loudspeaker saying, hey, it's okay. We're done. Come on out. You know, we're clear. All that you have to ignore and just wait. You just sit and wait. And that is the hardest thing. And I tell you, when you talk to principals, at, especially at elementary schools, because they feel so close to their kids, and they tell you, I, I have to do something. I have to get out of this school. I have to go save my kids. And just that parental, uh, you know, most of them have kids of their own. I have, I have a 16-year-old. Yeah. And you feel you have to do something. You, you, you can't believe that you, your, your, your whole being is telling you, just sit here and wait. You want to do something. You want to go save them. And I, I tell them over and over again, especially during the drills, because when I first started, they made the mistake of going out during the drill. They would take administrators and the head plan operator and other administrators to go out and check doors during the drill. I said, what would happen during a real event? They'd say, well, we do the same thing. I said, no, yeah. no, you're yeah. not going to survive. It, you can't. You're not helping anyone. By going out, checking on doors or checking on your students or making sure someone's safe. Number one item, keep yourself safe. You have to keep yourself safe first. Then you can help other people and you wait for the police. They're coming. I tell you, that five minutes is going to feel like an hours, but they're coming. And we can talk about mistakes that were made, whether it was Sandy Hook uh, up in Newtown, which my sister uh, lives there. I'm in the town across uh, next to that, Monroe. Uh, so I'm very familiar with that area. And then here I am down in Florida and Parkland happened at Majory Stoneman Douglas. And um, that's one of the reasons why I left uh, the job with the county, because uh, the state, um, I say in their wisdom, uh, it, it might be a good thing. I don't know. Decided that law enforcement should take over uh, all security at schools. And so that kind of put me out of the loop. Um, and then we had Uvalde out in Texas. So um, it, it just, uh, I tell you, Ken, it, there is no perfect solution. There isn't. I, I, no one can come up with a perfect solution. There's different areas, which I agree with. Uh, I'm in a niche, but there's different areas. We talk about threat assessment, behavior, the mental health aspect, the gun control aspect. Uh, the prevention aspect of hardening the schools and making them look like prisons. Uh, my niche and the reason I wrote the book uh, is to keep teachers safe and confident that they will know what to do in those five minutes. That's why I included in the book, or it'd be in the ebook, uh, a downloadable, it's only about 12, 15 page emergency reference plan 
It's not the total plan. A total plan would be something like, you know, 40, 50 pages. Just a plan that you can flip through and write your information in. And I also included a credit card size reference card. And I got the idea for that. Uh, There was a guy that I worked for here in the county, and he started it up. He thought, you know, uh, people wear lanyards with their IDs on them, or they uh, wear the lanyard with their um, copier card, where they they need to use a Mm -hmm. copier card. And he thought, geez, why can't I come up with a reference card in an emergency where someone can reference? And I found out also that doctors use this, even doctors in hospitals, because they'll say a code white or something. They forget, what was a code white again? And they'll look on the reference. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. So I wrote up these reference cards uh, that when you're panicking and you forget what day it is, you can quickly look, oh, I forgot to turn the lights off or, oh, I forgot to turn my computer off. You can quickly look at the reference card or even take a picture of it for your phone and use it. So when we're we're back to, you know, what drives me uh, to do this, um, I wasn't going to write a book, Ken. I I wasn't. I'm retired. I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I exercise, I do things around the house. I'm a house husband now. My wife is a doctor. She goes to work. And I have my son who is not out yet. So, uh, you know, I'm driving him back and forth to school and he's involved in activities. So I do that. But I, after Duvaldi, I just had all these ideas in my head. I said, you know, I got to put something down on paper. My wife was very good. She encouraged me. And that's what I did. It's a short, it's a small book. It's only 77 pages. It's very, it's what I call it, just a quick reference. You can flip through and find out what you need. And again, it's very specific. It, it, it's just a niche. It's not the broad emergency plan that you need for schools. It's just something that gives people confidence on, okay, I know the steps I need to take to keep myself safe. So that's the reason I wrote it. And uh, the reason ask the that question, I, Daniel. Yeah, go ahead. Why, why is it the, no, 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 I'm, I, it's, it's great. I'm enjoying this. Why do you think there's resistance against the training? Because you can look at any type of uh, institution that requires training, meaning uh, uh, the military, the police uh, department, any type of uh, military type places or institution. And you see, martial artists, musicians. I mean, we can go all the other places, you know, with this. That yes. when one practices, it becomes a second nature response so that when something, God forbid, does happen, that they, it's so programmed within them that when they respond, that when they hear those closing of the doors and the screaming and the yelling, they would be... Um, so, so program, if you will, I hate to say that, but they are so um, educated, if you will, that they will not move regardless of what's going. But they have to be trained to uh, not to be emotionally responsive at that time. You need to be more uh, logical as you're moving through. But if you're not trained, then you will respond more uh, emotionally. And that's probably where people lose it. So why the resistance, you think? Did you read my book already? There's, there's, <laughs> a chapter, there's a chapter in there where exactly what you're talking about, this muscle memory, this implicit memory. Yeah. And I, I talk about that in, in the uh, how it works is basically you do it without thinking. 
Most people, when they wake up in the morning, what do they, well, in the old days, what do they do? You went to the bathroom. Nowadays, as soon as you wake up, what are you doing? You're reaching for your phone and you do it automatically. Button a shirt automatically. Get in a car, put a seatbelt on. You don't even think about it automatically. Mm -hmm. All these things you do by muscle memory automatically. And that's um, what I tried to not only apply, but that's what I tried to push in the book saying, look, the more you train for this, the more you get it. And when something bad happens, boom, it's going to automatically kick in. Like you said, that impulse, that muscle memory or implicit memory will kick in and Mm -hmm. you'll do it automatically. I mean, the Secret Service, the the training we went through, we had to we had to qualify to shoot once a month. As far as I know, we're the only government agency that requires that every month we had to qualify with our service weapon. And after a while, the, the, the training part of it was. Everything became rote, what you did. I mean, you just, you know, brought it yeah. out of the whole, brought it out. It was just, like you said, in the military, it was just the same every single time. And that's why um, I, I push this in the book that training these teachers. The problem, Ken, is, is that, number one, you're dealing with oil and water. Law enforcement and, and education, it's like oil and water. Yeah. They do not get along. Uh, one doesn't trust the other. Uh, the other thing is, again, the pressure from administration uh, to do more teaching. Uh, this this safety security training, oh, we'll put that down on the bottom of the list. I, I fought and fought. Every time I tried to go through training with teachers, I would get, I swear to God, Ken, I would get 20 minutes. The rest of the time, they're spending days and hours on education and curriculum and this and that. I'm like, oh, my God, and they gave me 20 minutes. So it's not. it's the time that it takes. And to go in every six months and possibly give teachers an hour of training, it just doesn't set in. It, it doesn't work. because it, You know what? They're, they, look, normal people, and maybe you've gone through this, and, and you go into training that you're really not that interested in. You know, So here you are sitting there for some safety and security briefing. And if you're a teacher, what's in the back of your mind? You're thinking about homework. You're thinking about the test I got to give. You're thinking about the kids. Yeah. I got to this curriculum. They're under such pressure for the just their basic job in order to listen to this uh, about something that it's like being struck. It is like being struck by lightning. And yes, you say yeah. to yourself, that's the complacency I get. It'll never happen here. Not a chance. Never happen here. All these places where these shootings took place, especially, I'll tell you what, Sandy Hook. To get to that school, you're going through a very rural area, through a road that is very narrow. You have to go up this road, past this fire station, make a right, loop around. It's not easy. You can't see it from the road. You have to you have to get to it to get to the school. Yeah, uh, and it, it, this happened. Uh, Parkland, okay, that's was a broader, you know, large high school. And most of our high schools today are like college campuses. Uvalde, that's another one, you know, just this remote elementary school. So the complacency of it'll never happen here. Okay. It probably never will, but why not be prepared? Why not just, yeah. it, just in case, just have in the back of your mind, the, the switch has to click and now you're in a different mode. And when I train uh, teachers, I try to tell them, look, I know you didn't sign up for this. I know this is not your purview. I'm not going to sit here and give you eight hours of training. It's not going to happen. I'm going to give you just as much of a briefing as I can to save yourselves and save your students and do the easiest, simplest thing. Keep it simple, stupid. 
the easiest, simplest thing, lock down, keep yourself safe. Part of this other thing we talked about implicit and, and muscle memory, a lot of schools, and this is what happened in my area. And one reason why I left the, uh, the job is because they started something called options-based training, meaning if something happens, meaning an active shooter event is happening at your school, the school district, county, or sometimes the state said, okay, we're going to give you teachers the power to decide whether you want to lock down or whether you want to run out of the school. And I immediately was like, that is the craziest idea I ever heard of. Yeah. Why would you put teachers now in sense. a position of having to decide yeah. not only their life, but the life of their students? You talk about liability. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So yeah. as a as hypothetical, as an example, a shooter comes into the school and here you are, you're in an elementary school. OK, you're in elementary school, little kids, and you decide how oh, we're, we're going to run. We're going to run out of here. Well, now you've got, you know, I say like herding cats, you've got what, 25, maybe 30 students. Maybe some of them don't Mm -hmm. want to go. Maybe these little kids had their parents tell them, look, if something happens, you stay in that school and sit down in the classroom. You don't go anywhere. So you're dealing with that. And now you're going to bring these kids into an area where there's there's bad things happening. They'd be going through an area where possibly there's bodies, there's blood, there's screaming, there's loud sounds. Why would you do that? Um, I don't care if you know that that shooter is a quarter of a mile away on the other side of the school. I'm not going to take them out of the classroom and put them in danger. Now, the argument is once you get to middle and high school, the students themselves are sophisticated enough to do that. Well, I tell you what, it didn't happen in Parkland at that high school because the issue was when they went through their training and they did go through a drill There's a lot of media out there that said they did not do any drills at all at Parkland. They did. They did a drill a previous month before. However, they did not drill when the fire alarm would go off. And that was the monkey wrench that went in. Because during the shooting, it wasn't on purpose, but during the shooting, the fire alarm, the smoke alarm, excuse me, fire alarm went off by accident just when this was happening. So as they started to lock down, they said, "Uh uh-oh, the fire alarm went off. We have to get out. Well, once they got out into the yeah. hallway, some heard the gunfire and went back into the classrooms. Others started to run, and it just became this yeah. chaotic event. But back to your point of muscle memory, yeah, it's, yeah, the uh, there's no there's wow. no pushback on that specifically. It is there's pushback on the amount and type of drills that are being run. That's yeah. the pushback on whether to drill at all, which wow. again makes no sense to me because. Uh, and I'll give you an example um, on LinkedIn. There's a couple of good guys on there, a couple of safety experts on there to put out some good information. Up in Frederick, Maryland, they did a drill uh, in one of the high schools up there. And they gave different instructions. Uh, there was confusion. Uh, it just became this chaotic thing because they had not drilled for an active shooter event previously. And actually, the person who ran it said, this is a good thing. I want to find out how we'll react so we can fix it. And that's number one reason for having a drill. I don't care if it's a school, a business, whatever. You have to see how your people react so you can fix things. Yeah. So then when the real one happens, okay, now we know not to go through that door. Now we know not to use this. And at that high school, they found out people didn't have keys. 
the intercom didn't work on part of the building. And these are the things you find out when you drill. And I tell you what, Ken, when I was drilling down here, the same kind of things happened. Half the school would say, we never heard the announcement. Yeah. Uh, you'd have issues with the cafeteria uh, where the workers in there didn't hear anything because it was so noisy. So all these issues need to be brought up during your drills to find out uh, how to fix them. And they, and they are fixable. And that's one thing that uh, other things uh, people say, oh, it's going to cost me a lot of money because we want metal detectors. We want cameras. We want automatic door locks. We want all this technology. No, it's the human factor. It all comes yes. down to the human factor because, Ken, with all that technology, someone has to push the button. Someone yeah. has to make the call. Someone has to watch the camera. It's the human factor. Uh, technology is great. There are parts of technology I like uh, that work. Others, not so much. Not so much. I'm not the a fan of metal. Is gonna, it's going to change the, it's going to change the, um, you know, there's good things about it, but it's going to change a school into, as you said earlier, where it begins to look as a prison when you start yes. bringing in all the technology, yeah. but then that also mentally will affect a child. I mean, there's a lot of things and that they need to uh, take in. If you're going to play the game, as you said, if you're going to be in the educational system, the priority has to be the children. And there's right. data that's out there that supports um, that training is effective and multiple training is effective. And I guarantee yes. you it will be life saving and cost effective if you think that way instead of putting in all these other gadgets because within that um, five uh, five minutes it's the logical mind that will guide their situation and be in control within the five minutes because the technology as you said there doors could be closed this couldn't be working intercom all these kind of technical things, glitches will happen. And you don't even know it will happen because you've never trained. So I don't get it. I, I, I see the fight there, but I don't understand why there is a fight. And that is something that I guess that industry within those two players, the law enforcement piece and the educators, will have to come down and have an honest conversation. And right now, they're just spitting in the wind. And um, is there anything, Daniel, where there are outside groups that are working behind the scenes to bring some uniformity within the drills and these two departments to bring some kind of a mending, a, a collaboration, if you, if you will, to design something that can be uniform to a degree, because everything is going to be different depending on the side. But basic things, like you said, the um, the cards to alert the teachers, all of those things are basic that yes. in a split second within that first five minutes is will determine how many people live and how many people die. Yes, uh, uh, correct. Uh, the problem with this kind of issue and this industry is not only very new, even though we go back to Columbine, which is almost 30 years ago. Uh, so each yeah. state, each county, each city has their own 
basic, you know, drill procedure or procedure yeah. for, you know, emergencies. So, yes, the Department of Justice is getting involved. Department of Education is getting involved. But their background is business. Uh, yeah. This thing called um, uh, ALICE, or uh, there's these acronyms that these industries come up with. And some work and, and, and some don't. So it, there's not a – can I guess the word to use would be standard, standardization. Yes. There's, yes. there's no standardization yeah. government-wide. Each state – breaking down each county gets to decide how they want to run their drills, how often you run your drills. And um, it, it just, the government kind of, I, I say, they don't wash their hands of it. I mean, they're involved, but they really, it's a state issue, which it should be. I mean, I, you don't need the government overseeing every possible thing, uh, but yeah. the states should uh, follow procedure However, there's nothing that they uh, states would go and say, okay, we're going to follow a procedure or, or follow the B or C procedure. So I don't want to say they make it up as they go along uh, because there are. They make it up as they go along, Daniel. We, I've been in the system. I also work in healthcare and uh, we had to do it in healthcare and we needed to put it together. We had to kind of put it together. Um, right. And so. Um, if there is a way, I don't know, again, we are trying to reduce the uh, hand, the footprint of the federal government within it, but then someone has to come out and say, okay, these are the basic minimum or the standards by then right. which you can um, govern this type of behavior because the politicians are not going to, I don't see any type of decision within the next uh, five, ten years that will no. make any kind of impact to to no. you know within this industry and this 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 lifestyle. So we must have to have we have to have an honest conversation because we're blowing in the wind and we're we're looking at every couple of months or every month in America we have some type of incident like that and um, yeah. we're looking at thousands of young babies being, yes. um, you know, the stake is too high for us to be playing games with that those precious lives. I, I agree. Somewhere we uh, have to work. Yeah. No, I agree. That's not my lane. I don't want to get yeah, out of my lane. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's obviously, you know, a being an empath, health. though, Daniel, <laughs> how are you, I mean, being an empath in that situation, and not being able to have any, and you have the type A personality, not being able to have any type of control, if you will, like, you're probably right. losing your mind. It's frustrating, uh, especially after Uvalde. It was very frustrating uh, being from the law enforcement end of it. And it just, it was just a horrible, horrible day. Yes, there were other issues at that school uh, that, you know, separate from law enforcement with doors being unlocked and broken locks yeah. and doors being wedged open. But this response was just horrific of standing there and just waiting and waiting and waiting and not going in. And like I said, Ken, 99% of your police departments know that they're trained correctly uh, for this type of incident and they're going to go. And uh, that was just an, an anomaly uh, for that. To yeah, happen that, is, that day was a day of, you could see where, Character was not um, 
it wasn't a day for character. Uh, one's character. And it happened at Parkland also. Uh, You had the two security officers there that refused to go in. Yeah. So I want to say human nature, but you know, why the heck did you get on the job in the first place? In a job. Yeah. Why Mm -hmm. did you go on the job in the first place? It says specifically, you go, you go into danger. It's like a fireman. You go to the fire, you go to the danger. And that's the thing about, you've been in the health industry. When, you know, you hear a code or something, where's everybody, all the nurses and doctors, they're going yeah. to that emergency. They're going to that that person. You're driven for that. It's yeah. innate in your nature. And you know, I'm sure you've read uh, these other things about how people, uh, whatever their job is, go when there's a, a car accident or there's something yeah. that bad happens at a business, let's say a bombing or a fire. Different people, depending on the innate nature, will react. Your doctors will go immediately to save people. Police mm-hmm. will go to save firemen. Will you know that innate nature of your job? Uh, you, you know that is in your bones. You will, you're going to go and 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 do that. So, yeah, it's I don't know. Um, these state education departments and legislatures uh, have to figure something out. And it's yes, I was very glad down here in Florida they did have a conference and a board and a council that got together and decided steps that needed to be uh, taken by each county and the money was available which is a big thing for these schools to have the money and budget to do this so there is a lot of you know uh, parts to school safety and again i try to stay in my lane and just concentrate on the one thing of, of of saving people but yes there's things in the periphery that I talk a little bit about in the book, um, my opinion on things about metal detectors and technology, uh, you know, that some can help, some some not so much. But there's also issues I ran into in our school system because I, I can, I must have been involved in more than hundreds of, of drills at these schools of, yeah. of active shooter drills. And everyone is different. Everyone. Yeah. I don't care yes. if it's high school, middle school, elementary school. Everyone was different. And uh, it it just, yeah, like you said, it helps to train and drill properly uh, to get your mind to where, okay, I got to flip the switch. I got to go into this mode. I got to go into protection mode to save my kids. And that's what I'm trying to do. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. Training is the only way that you can do it. There is no other way, to be honest, that I know of, um, because I had to do... Uh, martial arts and stuff like that. And even as a musician, I had to practice. And after practicing for so long with my music and my my hands would be able to go without me even looking. Um, right. But had I not practiced, that would have never happened. I'd be all over the place, you know, creating <laughs> some different sounds that w- wouldn't fit. And so it doesn't make sense. It's not in a, in a high-pressured situation is where one needs to disconnect the emotional part of us and put it aside for the five minutes and beyond to make logical, um, trained uh, response to protect yes. self and all the other children or other um, you know people around you. Everyone that has been listening to Daniel and I, I, I know you know someone, uh, a teacher or someone within that system or even the healthcare system that would benefit from his book, I suggest there's a holiday coming up. Uh, You have a few days, Thanksgiving is here, Christmas and all of those holidays. Purchase Daniel's book. 
give it to people to bring them and make them aware of it. Even those teachers that you know that maybe can begin to uh, work on their, their students to talk, that have that conversation at that level because you're going to be responsible for those kids at that level and the teacher can have those conversations about her children and her classes so that they can um, communicate. So whichever class it happens, God forbid, that they have already spoken, they've been uh, engaged in a, a type of training amongst their own, own self, if necessary, man, uh, so that they can protect themselves. Uh, Daniel, I want to thank you, man, uh, for you sharing all of this because it's, that's important stuff. And my hope is that um, some organization, man, as they did in, in Florida, because I'm from Florida, they, that they are able to have that conversation because the prize is those children. Um, right. And we ought to be thinking of them and not so much. I get it about the money, but we don't know. Uh, the next leader that was supposed to be out of there, that would have changed the world. So we need to start becoming more proactive in our thinking to um, to protect them and the teacher as well. Daniel, thank you so much, man, for coming to Threads of Enlightenment, sir. Thank you, Ken. Uh, the name of the book is The First Five Minutes. And I know I've got a very strange last name, but if you type in my last name or my first name in the first five minutes, it'll come up on Amazon. And um, I appreciate the time and you giving me uh, this audience to uh, speak to an important subject. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. And we'll provide all that information for them to get to you. I'll, I'll let you know all of that. Okay. We'll give you a couple of days notice. And once it goes live, so you'll have that information. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate it. You too, sir. Have a good day. Everyone who's listening to this broadcast. We hope to continually help you to learn how to embrace moments of darkness because it is in the darkness that we learn how to develop and use our abilities to truly see those parts of ourselves often invisible to us in the light. It becomes your responsibility to navigate through all of your trials to find out who you truly are and begin your journey to loving yourself, which is possibly one of the most difficult things you will ever do in your life. To love yourself and to find the real you. But always remember to enjoy the journey. Thank you for coming by. Please subscribe. And if you can support us financially, we deeply appreciate it. Until next time, invite your family, friends, neighbors, anyone that you can. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio, CastBox, Overcast, and many more.